Okay, like Chad said, my husband and I run the children's ministry. He's doing it solo this morning um, because I am thrilled to have the chance to introduce our guest speakers. They are Jewel and Evan Evans. No, my grandparents were not mean in naming my dad Evan Evans. It's Welsh. But um, I may be biased, but I believe you guys are in for a really uh, special treat this morning. My mother was a pastor's kid, and she was a daughter of a pastor who, a church planner in the U.S. that planted churches all across the United States. And my dad grew up as a missionary kid in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Um, shortly after getting married, they took off to West Africa, where I was born and raised, and they served there faithfully for 39 years. My dad is a singer-songwriter. Um, I like to think that he's famous, but he's taught his songs all over the world. A lot of missionaries know his songs, and my mom has always been right up there next to him, helping him lead. And they both have a heart for youth, and I'm so glad to see the youth here this morning. They love youth that spend their hearts ministry, and they are known by hundreds, probably thousands of kids all over the world as Uncle Evan and Aunt Jewel. So without further ado, please welcome them up here. Thank you. My beautiful wife will come join me later, but uh, I'll kind of start off here. Uh, first of all, shout out to the youth. They're giving up donuts to hear this old geezer speak. So let's hear it for the youth. Let's give a shout out to the youth. I can honestly say it is a privilege to be here. And I just want to thank you on behalf of Jewel and myself uh, for the way that uh, you have blessed our kids, Mike and Mindy and our grandkids. Uh, I've heard wonderful things about KCC, this body of Christ, and they're all true. And so thank you. Thank you for, for blessing them. Uh, a few weeks ago, the pastor kind of kicked off this series on remembering with Joshua 4. And I'd just like to start by reading a section of Joshua 4, 4 through 8. It says this, so Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Remembering. Some of you may recall about two weeks ago there was a video of my daughter Mindy talking about a chest of remembrance. When, if you'd have walked into our home when Mindy was growing up, there was a chest of remembrance, a wooden chest tucked away in the corner that was filled with all kinds of memories. And it was taken really we wanted to kind of pattern it after this passage of scripture, but we didn't want the girls going out and grabbing big boulders and stacking them up in the living room. And so we had this chest of remembrance where uh, every time the Lord would answer uh, just a prayer request or would do something major, we would have the girls, ever since they were little, either write it down or draw little stick figures to capture that memory. And we put it in that chest. Then periodically, we would take that chest out and read through those stones of remembrance. It was amazing how much we had forgotten. Powerful answers to prayer. 
You know, I think one of Satan's tactics is to kind of develop a, a spiritual dementia in us where we forget the goodness of God. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to be intentional about remembering. Celebrate your spiritual birthday. Celebrate your kid's spiritual birthday. Be creative in intentionally remembering. This morning, my wife, Jewel, and I would like to go back and recall some of these stones of remembrance, memories of experiences that have shown us the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Two passions, I think, in, in my life, as my wife and I have worked with young people. One, we want to be instruments of the Lord in helping young people develop intimacy with Jesus. And the second thing was providing opportunities for our young people to experience the power of the gospel in them and through them. I preach through stories. So you're going to be hearing a lot of stories. And I would ask if you would just kind of humor me because in West Africa, when you're in a church service and the pastor gets kind of riled up and all excited about something, he will call out, Alleluia, and the congregation always responds, Amen. So I might get excited this morning, I might say, Alleluia, and you will respond, Amen. Not bad, but let's do it West African style. Alleluia. Amen. Ah, feeling at home, feeling at home. Are you ready for some stories? Alleluia. Amen. Here we go. The power of the gospel. One of the highlights for us in ministry has been to develop and oversee the outreach program where our young people, high schoolers, would go out into the community there and into villages and back into the interior. And they would proclaim the gospel in all kinds of different ways. We had building outreach, medical outreach. We had puppets. We had children's programs, evening evangelism, projection outreach. One of these weekends, we discovered that uh, we had some high school guys that we think we could develop into preachers. And so before we went, six weeks before, we chose three high school guys, and we said during this weekend when we go into the villages, when we go into the towns, <clears throat> you guys are going to preach. So they developed these, these uh, sermons for over six weeks. Well, we went on this outreach weekend. We always, obviously, uh, combine it with our uh, work with the national church. And so I remember we pulled into this village. It was a Saturday afternoon or really early evening. It was about 4 or 5 o'clock. We had been to several villages before this, several villages. And I, and I remember pulling up in there and uh, thinking, okay, I wonder how the kids are feeling. I turned down. We were in this bus. I looked down the aisle, and it looked like Rigamortis Alley. I said, oh, no. I said, we're here to proclaim life in Jesus, and we look like death warmed over. And I said, hey, kids, we, we, got, we got to ask the Lord for some strength. And they said, yeah, you're right, Uncle Evan. And we were reminded, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
the power of the gospel in our weakness. And so we've had a time of prayer, and the Lord infused us, and all right, we're getting off the bus, we're excited now. And I remember the young man, Kurt, who was supposed to preach in that village, comes up to me and says, Uncle Evan, I have something to say. And I said, what's the matter, Kurt? He said, you know that message I've been working on? I said, yeah. He said, I'm ready to give it, but I think the Lord wants me to go a different route. I said, are you sure? He said, I know, no, I'd, I'd rather go. I've been working on, on the other one. I'd rather do that. But he said, I just really sense this. I said, make sure it's the Holy Spirit, but you go the way uh, the Lord leads. We came into the village. We usually start off with our puppets. That kind of brings the crowds out. So our puppets are up there. We are so far back in the bush that I guess some of these kids hadn't seen puppets. So they're sitting front and center, and that first puppet comes up from behind the stage. Oh! And one kid just went, ah! He's screaming, and we're quickly trying to settle him down. We had the puppeteers come out. See, look, look. You see, it's attached to their hand. You know, they finally settle down. Our puppeteers, our puppets did their thing, and then Kurt got up, and he went the way the Holy Spirit led him, and he shared. Here's this high school kid. At the end, they gave an invitation. 30 people prayed for salvation. Alleluia. Alleluia. Kurt came to me and said, Uncle Evan, he said, you know, I didn't think the Lord could use me like this. When I graduated from high school, I, I, I wanted to go back and maybe work in uh, some type of uh, foreign service or maybe work in an embassy or a foreign business. But he said, I think God can use me as a missionary. Came back here to the States, went to college, met a beautiful young lady. They're now serving the Lord in Uganda as missionaries. Power of the gospel in times of weakness. The power of the gospel to change lives, drastically change lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're out in a village this one outreach weekend. And like I said, we worked with the national church. And so our high school kids had uh, done some uh, drama, and then we did some singing. And then two of our uh, national uh, leaders stood up. And I really didn't know the one guy. And the one guy says to all these villagers, you all know me. And the whole village just erupted with laughter. They're cracking up. And so I go over to the missionary, and I said, what's so funny? He said, see these two guys? He said, that is a miracle of transformation. So what do you mean? He said, well, that guy that's preaching, he's a former crazy man. Okay? He roamed outside this village in the jungle like, like a wild animal. Just roamed out there. I don't know who spoke to him, who proclaimed Jesus to him, but when the message was given, the Lord not only redeemed his heart, but redeemed his mind. Now, in West Africa, it used to be a, a French West Africa, and so usually when you're sharing the gospel, you not only have the tribal language, maybe the ethnic language of that, that village, but also they also have it in French. So we had the guy translating in French. So the guy that was translating was a former gangbanger from the big city in Abidjan. And so here you have a former gangbanger, criminal, former crazy man, and they're proclaiming Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! The power of the gospel to set prisoners free. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Our kids were able to have a prison ministry, to go in with the missionary that was working there in the local prison, both in the women's and the men's prison. And uh, they were able to have Bible studies. Uh, in fact, kind of the icing on the cake, they were actually able to go back after several years of working in the prison and to build a church in the middle of the prison grounds. Hallelujah! Now, they didn't have walls on it. They had to keep it open. But uh, just one little story, and I hope this doesn't take up too much time, but uh, we used to have a clothes drive where we'd send clothes to the women's prison, clothes to the men's prison. And when we were doing that dedication service of that church, I remember my wife and I were sitting there uh, getting ready to lead worship, and all of a sudden I looked and I said, Honey, do you see what I see? And she said, Yeah, I do. Well, there's nothing else for the other prisoners to do. So in this, you know, those that are worshiping or inside the church worshiping, other prisoners are just sitting around watching. And I saw this guy leaning up against a tree, and he had my wife's maternity outfit on, and it had baby across his chest and an arrow pointing down to his stomach. But there he was, this hardened criminal, leaning up against the tree. Yeah, baby. The prisoners asked if I would be willing to come out and to uh, share in a time when they were getting baptized, the baptismal service. And I said, oh, I'd love that. So I remember I'm coming through the gates, clearing security, and you could just hear this, wah, wah, this singing. I followed the beautiful music and found in the middle of the prison grounds about 300 to 400 prisoners worshiping Jesus. Again, the rest of the prison grounds, nothing else to do, they're watching. I sat down and my eyes fell on this one man. And I, he just had this certain aura, this, this atmosphere hanging over him. I mean, he was worshiping. He was just in heaven, in rapture. Talk about the joy of the Lord all over this guy. And I looked a little closer, and he had sores all over his body. He was missing a limb, but there he was. He was slapping that limb into his hand, and he was just worshiping. And I just couldn't take my eyes off him, and the missionary that was sitting beside me said, you see that guy? I said, I can't take my eyes off him, man. He said, that guy is one of the leaders of the church here. He is impacting this prison grounds. He is on fire. And I thought to myself, here he is in miserable conditions. In fact, that prison for a while, there were like seven people that were dying every week of starvation. Miserable conditions in that prison. Sores all over his body, missing a limb. But that man showed me more freedom than any man I've seen. His spirit was just soaring in the heavenlies with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The power of the gospel to change a culture. You heard that I was born and raised in Vietnam. My parents worked with the biggest tribe in Vietnam called the Jirai. They lived up in the mountains. Began working with the pastor. His name was Gahau. And Gahau had a passion to see his people come to know Jesus. And so he would preach in the town church, and then he would go out into the villages, into the jungles, and proclaim Jesus. At one point, communist rebels, the Viet Cong, came into the village where he was preaching, and they said, you have to stop preaching. But he couldn't stop. Continued to preach in the town church, and then go out into the jungle. One time, my dad was walking by the church, and he said he could hear Gahau up at the altar at the church, all by himself, crying out to God. He said, God, I, I look at the, the Gaha up in the area of Dalat, the Gaha tribe, and, and I see revival breaking out there. And even our sister tribe, the Rade, right here, the Rade tribe. 
Church after church is being built, and he cried out, why not the Jirai? He continued to preach, and sure enough, one night, the Viet Cong came into the village where he was at. They took him out into the jungle. They made him dig his own grave and then point-blank shot him. And there his body lies, but his soul lives on forever. Mom and dad continued to work in Vietnam, continued to minister. They uh, ended up partnering with a young pastor called Creao. And Creao was just like Gahau. He would preach in the town church, and then he would go out into the villages. And one day, sure enough, my dad got word that they found his body lying beside his little mobilette. He had been ambushed by the Viet Cong. Over 20 years in Vietnam, mom and dad spent. They didn't see too much fruit, but they continued to be faithful to proclaim, to plant seeds until they had to leave in 1975 when Vietnam fell. I hadn't been back to Vietnam, shows you how old I am, since 1969 when I graduated from high school. I am an old geezer, but listen to me. And I got to go back with my wife, my daughter, 2016, to go back to see my people, the Jirai. Wondering what's happened to this resistant tribe. And so I remember we finally got back in. You had to go through a travel agency, and the government was keeping an eye on us. It's still a communist country. It's very closed. And they're probably wondering, why do we want to go back into the interior like this? But I remember we got back in. And going down the road, and first of all, I was thrilled to see that our people, my people, still lived like they did when I was a kid. Longhouses up on stilts. We were there just after Christmas, and we're going down the road, and our people were animist. Now that means they worshipped evil spirits. And so we're going down the road, instead of seeing idols and, and fetishes on, on their porches, we were seeing nativity scene after nativity scene. And I said to our guide, what is the main religion among the Jirai, this resistant tribe? He didn't even hesitate. He said, Dinlan. You know what Dinlan means? Good news. The Evangelical Church of Vietnam. That's the main religion among the Jirai. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I went and saw a friend of mine who is doing research on the Church of Vietnam. And I said, Fitz, his name is Fitz Stevens. I said, Fitz, what's... What's happening? What's happening among uh, the Jirai? He said, well, it's been estimated that 80% of the Jirai tribe are followers of Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> yes, you can clap for that. Why not? Amen. <clears throat> now, fast forward about 50 years. We're, we're in Africa, Senegal, 90%, 96% Muslim. We're in a church. Our kids had just finished building a church. And we're up there, and uh, we're sitting there, and the pastor gets up, and he says, you know what? There's sometimes I come before God, and I ask God, God, I see what you're doing in Burkina Faso. The church is just thriving in Burkina Faso. And over here in Cote d'Ivoire, he said, I see what you're doing in Cote d'Ivoire. And he said, why not Senegal? <laughs> you know what? That, that rang a bell of Gahal, why not the Jirai? And look what God has done among the Jirai. And I thought, if he can do it among the Jirai, he can do it in Senegal. Hallelujah. Amen. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and it's focused on hope. And so I want Jewel to come up, my beautiful wife, and share with you a message of hope 
of power, and I uh, hope it'll be an encouragement. One of the memories that I want to share with you that is in that chest of remembrance for my family has to do with my sister, and it is a testimony to the power of God to break addictions. As Mindy told you, I was raised um, as the daughter of a pastor, um, the middle child with an older sister named Faith and a younger brother. And when I was in ninth grade, we moved to another city, and as it so happened, when we moved to this city, and we were transitioning to a new city, new church, new school. The kids in my grade that pulled me in and made me feel accepted in that move were the Christian kids, and I fit right in. However, the kids in my brother's grade and the kids in my sister's grade that pulled them in and made them feel accepted were kids that were starting to experiment with drugs and alcohol and um, both of my siblings ended up making um, bad choices that had devastating consequences for many years to come. Over the next 20 years, my brother would be in and out of jail and prison in 13 different states. And my sister ended up out here in California in the drug culture. And I went to Bible college and went on to be a missionary. So we chose very different paths. So let me fast forward a little bit to when I was then years later on the mission field in Africa and God was really speaking to my heart about becoming a woman of faith and experiencing his power in my everyday life. And so here I was, a missionary in Africa, feeling really fulfilled in ministry, experiencing God's blessing, but also feeling twinges of guilt that I had a brother and sister back here in America who were far, far from God. And the enemy began to beat me over the head and whisper in my ear and say, what are you doing here? You should be back there influencing them. And so it was at that point in time that I got a prayer journal. Ladies, does this look familiar? We were giving these prayer journals. I had a prayer journal that I started back then and I began to pray more fervently for my brother and sister since there was an ocean between us. I began to write out really specific prayers for them in my prayer journal. And I started to believe God for big things in their lives. One day, God gave me a glimpse that he was answering my prayers as specifically as I was praying. By this time, my sister had broken off all contact with my parents. They didn't know where she was. They hired a private investigator, and that's how they found her out in California. And they came out here to see her. They reestablished contact with her. And um, from that point on, my mom would send me a photocopy of any letter that my sister would write to them, which wasn't many. They were far. I mean, few and far between, but whenever my sister would write a letter, my mother would photocopy it. This is before the era of email, obviously. She would photocopy it and send it to me in Africa. So one of the specific prayers that I had written out for my sister was that she would realize that she was just spinning her wheels and going nowhere in life, and that she would realize that 
the friends that she was making out here in this drug culture weren't true friends. They were just superficial friends. And one day I went to the mailbox and I opened up a letter from my mother and there was an insert of a photocopied letter from my sister. And at the end she said, um, I just want to thank you for um, going to all the trouble of hiring a private investigator to try to find me. And I'm happy that contact has been reestablished between us. It means a lot to me. But then she said, I have come to the realization that I'm just spinning my wheels and going nowhere. And my hands began to shake as I was reading that letter, as I'm walking up the walkway to go into my house. And not only that, but she said, everything of value that I had when I arrived here, I no longer own because these people that I'm living with in this house, house have hawked everything of value. My jewelry, she said, the last ring I owned was on, I left it on by the sink and someone stole it. They hawk it for money so that they can get more drugs. And then she said this, I realize that these, they aren't friends at all. They're just superficial. And I thought that is word for word what I've written in my prayer journal. And I went in and I could open that prayer journal to that entry and I took that letter and I, I held it side by side and it was word for word what I had written in my prayer journal. So I stuck that letter in there and then I thought, if God is answering my prayer as specifically as I'm praying, I'm going to pray a lot more boldly. So you know that verse, Proverbs 22, 6, that says, train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he won't depart from it. I do not think that that means that our children will never walk away from the faith. That doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is they can't get away from that training, right? So I knew my sister had been sitting beside me all those years in church with our dad being the pastor. And she had heard the Bible verses. We had memorized scripture as a family. And she had also heard the great theology that comes from hymns when we had been singing hymns and so I started praying that whenever she had a free moment and her mind was idle that God would bring back some of these scripture verses and run them through her mind and that even the hymns that she had learned as a child would come back to her mind that great theology and they would and she would remember every verse so God gave me glimpse number two that he was answering my prayers as specifically as I was praying. When a few months later, my mother again sends me another letter from my sister that she had photocopied. And at the end of that letter, it came in the form of a PS. My sister said, PS, I know you must be praying for me, mom and dad, because whenever I pull up in my driveway at the end of a work shift, and I just sit in silence, I have these scripture verses that are going off in my head and I can even remember the references. And not only that, but I'll be humming a tune as I'm washing dishes or something and I realize that's a hymn and I can remember every verse to the hymn. And she said, I know you must be praying for me. And I thought, no, it's me, it's me over here in Africa. I'm the one that's praying. I could take that one again, a few months later, go to the, that journal entry where I had prayed that and I took that letter and I folded it up and I put it in there, in, in that date. 
as an answer to prayer because I knew that my prayers were moving the hand of God across the ocean. It was shortly after that that Evan and I returned to the States with our four daughters for a year of home assignment. And when we got back to the States, um, we were down in Florida, and I contacted my sister out here in California, and I said, please, come live with us. Start your life over. Um, you can live with us for the whole year and get a job here in Florida and, you know, get grounded and, and everything here with your family that loves you. And it took me all the way up to Thanksgiving before she would agree to come. And she didn't have money for an airline ticket, so I said, I will buy your ticket. And she said, make sure it is a round-trip ticket, Jewel. Don't buy me a one-way ticket where I'm stuck there. So I bought her a round-trip ticket, and I honestly tried not to let the shock on my face register when I went to pick her up at the airport because she was 12 months older than me. She looked 12 years older than me. Sin had so hardened her, and she was so malnourished from the drugs, just skin and bones, malnourished. Um, and I tried not to let it register on my face, and we had Thanksgiving, but it was kind of a hard week because she was coming down off of the drugs. She didn't want to bring any drugs with her, so she was always in a cold sweat or sleeping. And um, long story short, Thanksgiving came and went, and all along I had been dropping these little hints like, Faith, you can just stay here. You don't have to use the second half of your ticket. Just stay here with us. And she would never respond. She would just smile at me. So one day, I was going past her room, and the door was open, and I had a basket of laundry. And I overheard her talking to this guy that um, lived in that house with all the rest of these drug addicts. And I heard her say, Michael, my, I arrive the day after tomorrow. Be there. Tell me. Repeat back to me when my arrival is. Will you be there? Promise me that you'll be there to pick me up. And my heart just sank because I thought, oh, she's going to return to that toxic situation where she knows that these aren't true friends. And so I thought, I know what. I'm going to go up to my bedroom, and I'm going to grab that journal that had her two letters in it and my journal entries, and I was going to show her how God had been after her. Whether she realized it or not, he was chasing her down. And I thought it would really move her, so I went down to her. She was laying on the bed reading a book. And I said, Faith, I want to share something with you. I, heard, I overheard you talking to Michael on the phone, asking him to come pick you up. And um, I said, can I just share with you that I have been praying for you for so long, and I have been praying specific prayers for you. And I just want to show you, I have two letters from you that Mom photocopied and sent to me. And they are word for word what I was praying for you. I just want you to know that God has been after you. And, you know... I shared them with her, and honestly, her face was stone cold. She just laid there on the bed. It didn't move her like I thought it would. And she said, Jewel, I am not like you. Um, Greg and I are the black sheep of the family. You're the white sheep of the family. And I'm not like you. I've experienced too much. You do not want me near your four daughters. I would be a bad influence. And um, I thank you for the offer, but I'm going to return to California. So I went up to my room and just bawled because I thought if that didn't work, I don't know what would move her heart. So the next day was her last day with us, and 
I invited my parents over for dinner and we had this kind of a farewell dinner. After dinner, we went down into the living room. Um, we were living on the water and off of the living room, the sliding glass doors was a balcony. And it was one of those nights where the stars were shining so brightly and reflecting on the water, just like a mirror image on the water. And so we all sat down in the living room and Faith went out onto the balcony to smoke a cigarette. And I mean, like one minute later, the door, sliding glass door flies open. She comes running across the living room, throws herself down on her knees in front of me and just buries her head in my lap. And she said, are you still praying those stupid specific prayers for me? And I said, you know I am, why? And she said, I just went out there to have a smoke. And she said, I'm, I'm looking at the beauty. It was just, it's just so incredibly beauty, beautiful out there. And she said, I just involuntarily started singing, how great thou art. And she said, you're right. God is after me. I'm tired of running. I'm so tired of running. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here and start my life over. And right there, she got down on her knees. And we had a family altar where faith gave her heart to God. And she started her life over. She lived that year with us, got fully grounded in the faith and in um, her walk with the Lord. And in fact, she ended up um, years later coming out and spending eight years on the field with us in ministry. Um, and this is the power of God, the power of God to break addictions. Let me tell you, transformed life. So why do I share the story with you this morning? The reason I share it is because, first of all, it's a message of hope. Because I know that in a room this size, there are many people that have unsaved loved ones. And I can stand before you today and tell you that there's hope for any situation. If I had had time, I would have told you part B about my brother accepting Christ after running from him for 20 years in a prison cell in Alaska. I can remember at his very worst um, saying the most vile, blasphemous things that came out of his mouth. And there were times when I was tempted to give up on him and think there's no hope, but God wouldn't let me. And after 20 years of praying for him, he's another story of hope that proves that Jesus can conquer anything in a person's life. So if he can reach my brother this and sister drug addicts and um, blasphemous like my brother was, he can reach anybody. That is the power of the gospel. Amen? So my prayer for you today um, is that this testimony will resonate with someone in this room and that it will inspire you to ask God yourself to help you experience the power of the gospel in your everyday life and to ask God to help you to step out in faith and believe him for big things because we serve a God who specializes in the impossible and he delights in answering specific prayers. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I just wanted to show a video. One thing that's uh, kind of an advantage of technology is many times technology can capture some great memories. Isn't that true? Cell phones and video cameras and we are able to capture. And sure enough, we were out on an outreach. We went to this village. And as we came into the village, they stopped us outside this one area. And they, we said, why are you stopping us? They said, well, this area here is the Muslim prayer area and we don't want you to walk across them. We said, we want to respect that. So we went around 
the side of it and then set up right in front and had this big evangelism campaign. Mike was along that, that time and it just happened that the video cameras were rolling. And this is what happened. seen that video yeah <laughs> I've seen that video tons of times but still in all those hands go up power of the gospel power of the gospel just in closing I want to share one more story I was talking to an old dorm parent I went to boarding school talking to an old dorm parent of mine, and he had just come back. He was a missionary in Vietnam, just come back from Vietnam. He was telling about this pastor that had been thrown in prison because of his preaching for Jesus Christ, for his declaration of Jesus Christ. And he was thrown into solitary confinement. And he said to me, you know what? While this pastor is in solitary confinement, he led eight men to the Lord. I said, wait, wait, wait. Uh, didn't you say he was in solitary confinement? Uh, what's solitary confinement? By himself. I said, what, the guards give him an intercom or a PA system, you know? He said, no, the Lord kind of did. I said, what do you mean? Here this pastor is. He's in prison because of preaching for Jesus Christ, for declaring Jesus. And he could have thought to himself, you know, there's nothing I can do. I might as well feel sorry for myself. But no, he's thinking, there's got to be an opportunity here somewhere. So he's looking around his cell, and his eyes fell on the toilet. And he realized it was an open sewer. There were pipes, but they're open sewer. And that he could get down and talk into his toilet, and the sound would go, and what? Come up other guys' toilets. Okay. Can you imagine the first time he was checking it out, you know, the guys in another cell are sitting there laying down. Oh, hello, testing. Ah! Where are you? Anyway, that pastor got down on his hands and knees and he preached into his toilet. And the other prisoners got on their hands and knees and they listened into their toilet. 
and amen. Give their heart to Jesus. Give their heart to Jesus. Hallelujah. Potty humor, so I like to share this with you wherever I go. And I basically say at the end, in a joking way, if God can use a toilet, he can use you. But it's true. It's the power of the gospel. You know, one of the most liberating statements that was ever said to me was this old Dutch missionary. And he said, you know what? He said, every time we proclaim the name of Jesus, invisible thrones of the evil one tumble. He said, it is not our responsibility to save people. That is the Holy Spirit. All the Lord wants us to do is to proclaim. Is to proclaim. Because there is power in the gospel. Amen? There is power in the gospel. I just want to close by reading 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It says this. But know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And listen to this. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. We have a message to share. It's a message of hope, of joy, of peace of freedom, of transformation, healing, victory over darkness, intimacy with Almighty God. It's the gospel. And so I encourage you to proclaim this life-giving gospel in word and in power. Alleluia. Alleluia. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. So often we can feel that we're just so weak, and we are weak. But when we are weak, Lord, you are strong. And there's power. There's power in the gospel. And so, Lord, as we go out in our own schedules, as we bump into people, as we work, Lord, I ask that you will give us opportunities to share the power of the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that the blood never loses its power. Thank you for this time we've had to remember. And we want to give all glory and honor to you. And I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.